0: So. All right, what's up, what's up, party people? Happy Tuesday, May 3rd, 2022. We've got Nick Larson here and Mr. Maxwell Bradley, Philicon Zombies. We've got a super special guest today, Mr. Matt Lopez, who's visiting from Los Angeles with a Bay Area original. And Matt is going to be sharing a little bit about his expertise as an attorney, as a startup mentor, as an investor, as an advisor, and all sorts of fun stuff. So really uh, glad to have you here, Matt, today, and welcome uh, welcome Matt to the show.
1: Thanks for having me. Hey, nice to meet you there, Matt. (laughs) Great meeting you too, Max.
0: Great. Um, so as we get things kicked off here today, Matt, why don't you give us a little bit of background on uh, on your story and uh, what's what you're working on now?
1: Yeah. So um, I started off at going to law school, and when I was in law school, um, I actually ended up starting a startup, and uh, we ended up raising about a quarter of a million dollars, and we burned through every penny of it while I was in law school trying to get it off the ground. We made a lot of mistakes and. Um, learned a lot of lessons. And so one of those lessons that I learned was I shouldn't be an entrepreneur, <laughs> um, but I really liked the startup world and helping startups. Um, so I built my career as a lawyer around startups. Um, so I spent the good first part of my career um, working with startups in in-house counsel um, and really kind of learning the ropes of being able to advise them, taking the lessons that I learned from running my own startup, I ended up getting a master's in accounting while I was doing all of that. So I have a deep understanding of business, accounting, tax, and law, and how all of that. It's a
0: triple threat. I know.
1: (laughs) It's one of those things where a a lot of business owners, they listen to a lot of advisors, and the tax guy's like, hey, you need to talk to the accountant. The accountant's like, you need to talk to the lawyer. And the lawyer's like, no, you really need to talk to the tax guy. And one of the nice things is I can actually listen to all of them right. and be able to synthesize it for the business owner. right. So less finger pointing. Less finger pointing. It it's makes nice. life so much easier for, for, the, sure. for these business owners. So after I got done with working in-house, I decided to become a fractional general counsel. Um, and so I decided to kind of just work with three to five different startups, help them out. And I ended up finding way more startups that needed fractional legal help. So I ended up building a law firm that plugs into startups as a fractional legal department to help them scale because a lot of the times they don't need a full-time general counsel or can afford one, and so what we do is we just come in there and give them the services that they need, so that way they can get the legal help that they need. In this,
0: so what when you so thank you for a little bit of the background. In your estimation, when is the ideal time for a startup to get a, a- A full-time GC,
1: or what what are your thoughts? So a full-time GC, you generally want to bring in maybe, depends on how regulated your market is, how much contracts you have. Um, But generally, you don't need that until at least after Series A, Series B, most of the time. But the problem is you do need help, legal help, way before that. Because a lot of the times when you're setting up, your first setting up the company, people do it in the wrong way. And then that leads to huge issues down the road, especially when they're giving out their first like safe notes and stuff. Most people don't realize they have to actually register with the SEC when they uh, issue safe notes. Wow, oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Taking notes. <laughs> so, <clears throat> I, generally
0: speaking, like safe notes are not, they're kind of, they're founder friendly. But uh, when do you recommend away from safe notes and want to do more of like a just straight priced round?
1: So generally there's um, early stage, you're either doing a convertible note or a safe note. And then that's what you do in like the early stages with the early uh, angels, maybe your seed round. But generally when you're getting over into the like three to $5 million range, then you're thinking about a priced round because a lot Mm -hmm. of your, um, you're probably taking, you probably have a lead investor at that point. That might want it. And usually it's the pressure from them actually wanting to get equity mm-hmm. rather than deferring it to the next round. Got it. Got it. And so you, you
0: mentioned you mentioned it's kind of interesting, right? Because like I've heard of engineering and technical debt, um, but I've, I've never really thought much about legal debt. Yeah. Like the,
1: the cleanup right
0: so have you had have you had situations where you have to like clean cleanup up problems for,
1: oh it, for your portfolio company? it happens all the time i just actually got done working um for a client of mine uh we just got brought in to do all of their contracts negotiations and they asked us to review their contract unfortunately for them the contract was absolute garbage Oof. and they had no clue what kind of legal debt they were creating and if let's say one of their clients, their customers breached the agreement, they would have little to very little recourse in damages that they could gather. And so they could have, if one of their customers did something really bad, it could have killed their company. What would be an example of like their customers doing something bad, like not, not
0: paying their vendors on time? No.
1: So, uh, there, There's not like a there, slap on the wrist. It, it's not that bad. Um, okay. The big thing is usually when you're talking about software companies is the actual software licensing and the limitations that a company gives to another company to like sub-license and do it with other companies. Mm. And also like a white label kind of a... System. Exactly. This was okay. a white label solution company. Uh-huh. Um, and so they they provide this software and it, they it gets integrated into a bunch of other software. And so if they had put in open source software that made it public, they could have killed their company because all of their software then would have become public knowledge and public domain and the lawsuit against them. If they had their contract done properly would have been huge, but the way that it was drafted, they didn't have much. Gotcha.
0: And if you're just joining us here, folks, uh, we've got Matt Lopez attorney investor startup advisor extraordinaire uh, based out of Los Angeles and we're, we're gonna go ahead and put his uh, his LinkedIn up at the top so if you want to add Matt as a friend or engage with him or, or send him referrals you know please please feel free to to do so um, so so Matt uh, give us give some uh, some juicy stories obviously as an attorney you, you probably need to uh,
1: redact some of the names yeah. but
0: You've got all sorts of fun stuff up your sleeve.
1: So one of my favorite stories that I had is I just came into this company, Uh, they've been going for about six months, Uh, they were in the process of raising money, doing all of the normal startup stuff, and they were going super hard. Um, And at the end of the day, one of the founders actually lost his marbles because he wasn't he wasn't sleeping. He wasn't like he was just burning the midnight oil constantly. And ended up being hospitalized
0: really like in a mental
1: hospital and wow. like we all cared about him, but it locked up the company for, for three months. Well, because he was a 50% owner.
0: When, when you say locked up the company, you mean like decisions couldn't be
1: made yeah. Or- certain decisions couldn't be made because they didn't have the power to make those decisions on their own. And I had just come into the company. And so I didn't have the, I had not solved that problem yet. I was triaging all of their problems, and so this is now um, one of the first pre- problems of triage. So, in Matt, economy. how would
2: you solve a problem like that for a fifty percent owner who becomes immobilized? How do you how do you provide against that? Like,
1: um, it's it, it's not terribly difficult. So usually, what you do is in your founders' agreements that you have with the with them, or in your bylaws. Like, there's lots of different places that you can put these different uh, clauses. I generally recommend that it's either in the founder's agreements or in the bylaws that if someone gets incapacitated, especially on the board of directors or in a C-suite, that they can be filled in with someone else or that power gets transferred uh, to the other board members.
2: Got that. So that's more of a kind of not operating agreement. That's an LLC. Uh, The founder's agreement. Four for whatever Delaware C you're doing on something like that. So you'd rather do it like that rather than doing it kind of on like a per share basis. You know, yeah. what about something like that? Would you ever? Would you ever kind of just take control based on the amount of shares that somebody had? What What about
1: something like that? So there's a lot. Again, it, it it's one of those things you customize to the client or to the company and how it is because what let's say maybe there's three people and or four, maybe there's four. Mm-hmm. And that happens. Or if it's two, you can do it on, based on the board, like the board's the one that controls. So who's on the board, who has voting control, all of these different things. So that's why I generally, I like to put it more in the bylaws than in the founder agreements, or if it's an LLC in the operating agreement.
2: Gotcha. Sounds good. Have you ever been in a situation? I mean, this is kind of the Hollywood situation. I'm thinking of, um, the social network scene mm-hmm. where Zuckerberg cool. takes it away from Sovereign by issuing a bunch more shares. Yeah. We, yeah. You say, Nick?
0: Oh yeah, Matt now we're just we're just talking a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So Nick, I can't disclose some of these facts. But <laughs> if you want to, you can share or I can just Yeah, no Yeah, go ahead cool. please. So uh, actually Nick is one of my clients and we're actually dealing with a situation like this where he wasn't issued uh, his shares properly. And so now we're having to go back with the company and sort it out. And that actually happens a decent amount where um, founders, whether it's intentionally or unintentionally, will not get board resolutions. I actually had this happen to me in a company where I was brought on as a GC and I was, isu- I was supposed to get issued shares and they didn't do it.
0: What percentage of the, of the times... Do you find that the founders uh, just settle, uh, as opposed to wanting to you know, go to the mat
1: and have to you have to take them to take them to court? It depends on, on the percentages. It depends on the situation and how guilty they like like <laughs> what kind of evidence you have. Okay. Like um, in my situation, it just wasn't worth it. Like I'm I'm going to sweep it under the covers. In your situation it's definitely worth it. Sure. It it also depends on how far along that company is at that stage and what those shares are worth. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. There's a lot of factors that go into it. And so the further you go in the company, I imagine they're going to fight harder.
0: And and, and help us understand um, because you get, you get such incredible deal flow Um, is from, you're coming from somebody in the Bay area who's, you know, uh, friends with people like Max and, Rodolfo and and Tanya and David, like there are so many unique uh, drivers in in innovation. Um, Help us understand like some
1: of your, some of the favorite companies that you're working with right now. Um, So the way that I generally get my deal flow is I try and find the many to one relationships where I can find one person that has a lot of influence or is has a lot of people that know my ideal customers. So I generally work with uh, like fra- other fractional executives because they already go out and find these companies. And most of the time, these companies don't have an attorney or don't have a good one. And so they're like, hey, you should, you should have <laughs> that. And so that's generally how I get to look at these really cool companies um, that a lot of attorneys wouldn't get these looks at.
0: So you kind of get to play both sides of the coin. One of the companies that that Matt had introduced me to a few months ago is a, a first-time founder um, also in Los Angeles in the, the, the food tech space. <clears throat> so imagine creating a marketplace for hungry people and food trucks, except what's unique about their value proposition is the ability to order a couple days in advance, and that has awesome impacts, not only for the environment because you, you don't have food waste, but also for the end user because instead of paying $10 for a meal, you could pay seven or whatever the case and is. And it's right. also
1: fantastic for the, food, for the food trucks because the major loss that a food truck's actually gonna have is wasted food. Mm-hmm. So if they can get that even 20% better, that's huge, that increases their margins dramatically and making them more successful. Because they're able to predict how much food they're actually going to need for a day, and not have food waste. Right, right.
0: Um, let's let's go ahead and open this up to the uh, to the audience. Wait, Nick? Yeah, Max, go ahead, please.
2: Oh, yeah, I have <coughs> Just kind of a, a more technical question, if Matt doesn't mind me asking. Um, for if you were going to issue shares to a non-founder, and you because you can't issue just direct shares because of the the tax consequence of the whole thing. You, I'm assuming you would issue. Issue options contracts um, on those shares. Would the only way to get around the tax liability from the IRS be to issue that strike price to be equivalent to the fair market fair market value? Is that is that how you do something like that?
1: Um. So you, if you are issuing shares to someone, you have to do the strike price at the fair market value in most cases. Gotcha. Because otherwise, you you come a lot of the options that you do at the very at the very beginning. You have mm-hmm. to do it at fair market value. Otherwise, you trigger huge tax consequences that gotcha. are extremely bad for the company. Gotcha.
2: Okay. So even if you were going to issue shares, the fair market value, though, say just for you know, arbitrary sake, a uh, dollar, there'd still yeah. be no tax cons- consequence on that. But you'd be able to use those shares as voting power. So you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to have that cap gain from par value to fair market value, but you'd still have shares that were able to behave in kind of a controlling
1: way, is that right? It depends on your situation. Are these vested shares or unvested shares? Unvested. So unvested shares create a completely different uh, tax situation. So as let's say you are having a form of the traditional four years vesting period with a one year cliff, right? Got it. So after one year, if you don't do it properly, that one year, let's say the company is now worth Let's say the shares went from one dollar to three dollars. You now have oh. to pay taxes on that difference because oh, the ordinary, now you receive right. you actually received them at that market value. Um,
2: so, okay, so you're so that would be so. You, are you saying? Are you talking about the ordinary okay. income tax on the delta between those two values?
1: It uh, depends on how they were given. Whether they're RSU, like there's so many different types of ways you can give shares, um, that it could be those things. Um this, this is why, one, yeah. this is why Sorry. you finally file a I think it's uh eighty yeah, B. Yeah, eighty uh, three B exemption. And gotcha. Okay. Because then you're 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 pushing the tax consequences to when you actually sell it.
2: Which would be cap gains. Got
1: it. Okay. Exactly. Depends again, you have to hold it for the rec- the, the 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 um the year period after you receive them.
2: Oh, okay for the long-term rates okay for sure okay sorry guys that was just my technical no, question.
0: No, no apology necessary it's,
1: it's good
0: to oh get wait and then just the...
2: uh, a and just one more sorry nick uh one more tail question on that when you exercise that strike price you're exercising that when you're getting liquid with them right so or you'd be giving the um you'd be giving you'd be paying that strike price when you get liquid and sell those shares all the way, as opposed to when you'd be receiving the shares, um, even if they were unvested in the 83B situation,
1: right? Um, depends on how it was structured, but most of the time, if it's a strike price, you're now purchasing them. So it depends Definitely. on how, how it was done. It's it's an option to purchase versus mm-hmm. a, a, where it's the, it automatically vests. Because, gotcha. so again, it's the difference between like RSUs and all these different, there's so many different styles of grants that you can give. And each gotcha. one has their own mechanics and tax mm-hmm. consequences and tax benefits. Um, gotcha. Okay. But generally, if you're talking about early stage people within a company, you can actually issue straight equity. You don't have to issue um, it based on an ESOP or one of these other types of plans.
2: Because the shares are at par value, right? Mm-hmm. So you gotcha. can just
1: okay. you can just you can just buy buy them at par value because they're so cheap usually at that stage. Um, gotcha. Because they're like a hundredth of a cent, like a hundredth of a cent or something. So gotcha. you can buy them all for like a thousand bucks or a hundred bucks.
2: Gotcha, and that's just um, paid-in capital. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. I'm sorry. I just that was my that was my little technical. Yeah, yeah there. But yeah, uh, as Nick said, opening up to the floor, if anybody has any questions about anything.
1: Yeah,
0: raising feel free to, to hit the, the, the hands up button and and um, and uh, we'll, we'll have you uh, ask some questions for, for Matt here. And and while we're waiting for that, one thing that, that Matt and I were recently discussing is the importance of team building. Uh, and he mentioned a book that I thought was like super interesting. I, I think
1: you said it was five Characteristics, of- uh, the five dysfunctions.
0: Right. Can Can you tell us
1: uh, a little bit about the this book? Yeah. So uh, it's actually a really short book. It's actually done in a narrative instead of a traditional style where it kind of just explains concepts. So you actually get to understand the like a, You get to learn with a story. And so what they do is they actually take you through the five dysfunctions of a team. And a lot of it comes down to these five different areas, results, accountability, commitment, conflict, and trust. And so a lot of the times um, teams, there's either an absence of trust, there's a fear of conflict or a lack of commitment, avoidance of count- accountability or inattention to results. And so all of these different things actually lead to the breakdown of how teams work together. and it, it's not only within a individual team, but how other like management teams work together, especially. You mean like the, how the departments interact with each other? Exactly. It. So it's not only the department heads, but it's also the departments themselves. Okay. Any type of time where you have group projects, um, this comes into it, this comes into play. Um and it's a fantastic book. I highly recommend it. Um it's super short. I think it's only like Fifty oh, to one hundred wow. pages. Cool. Like she really gets. Uh, I believe it's a female author, and she really gets down. Or maybe it was just the female uh, voiceover oh, okay. on Audible because I'm, uh, a, I'm a big Audible the, fan. The truth comes out. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> as, an <laughs> attorney, <laughs> as an attorney, I, I read a lot, so yeah. I don't want to read more books. Yeah. Um. So I listen to them when I when I have a moment, and this is one of my. This is a great book.
0: I, I heard that the speed and retention when you're reading is it's like five X or something crazy when rather than reading a, like a paragraph, for example, there's just one word on the screen. Have You ever seen that? Like the huh. dog jumped over the fence. No, I've never seen that. Before. Yeah. It's kind of like a an
1: interesting approach to, um, I mean, uh, yeah. Yeah, obviously you obviously have to read it as opposed to like getting yeah. it read to you. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. That's very cool. I didn't know anything about that. Um, so let's see, let's, um, Let's have
0: uh, Tanya, for example, if, if you wanted wanted to share some uh, some recent traction on your startup. Uh, Matt is an investor; it'd be great to get some advice and some thoughts on how to uh, on how to approach both scaling your customers and and closing some capital. Uh, so Tanya, we'd love to um, would love to have you uh, ask some questions here. And while we're waiting for Tanya, <laughs> we we could. Um, Ask a, a little bit about the the pipeline strategy for for closing new revenue. Like one of the, like obviously, as you're going through the process of raising capital, the most compelling thing that you could do is just keep driving revenue. In fact, when we started Silicon Zombies, um, actually we're coming up on our year anniversary. It's so pretty cool. Congratulations! And time flies by. Shout out to to Mr. Sean Flynn, who kind of kicked all of that off with uh, the Silicon Valley Startup Podcast. Um, so one what, what of the most compelling things that you could do and this was kind of dovetails into the initial the first name which was revenue Spartans just always close focus on customers right so like, even if you have uh, a, a lawsuit that you're dealing with or you lose your top technical talent or there's a competitor in the space that, that starts to eat your lunch you know as long as you're continuing to drive revenue in a positive direction you can you can overcome any challenge what are some of the ways that that startups can, build those revenue channels and stay organized
1: from your perspective. So I work with a lot of CROs on this kind of stuff because I'm very involved in the the end sales process with them. And kind of one of the major things that I've seen with a lot of the better CROs is making sure that your team is organized and having the right tools to be able to um, find your ideal client or customer and being able to identify that person. Because if you don't know who your cust- your ideal customer is and where to find them, it ends up creating more and more issues because you, um, you're you trying to sell to the wrong people, you're spending time and effort with someone that's really not going to purchase it. And I've got a number of companies that um, they've told their teams, like don't focus, like it's a, it's a numbers game, but it's a numbers game specifically towards the people that you, you want. And, and, and you need to be able to qualify them quicker and faster.
0: And how do you how do you know if you're focusing in the right on the right target market?
1: That's a great question. That's a like it's one of those things that's a that's a million dollar question right there. Mm-hmm. And I think it really comes down to are people actually interested in giving are you getting positive feedback into it? Um, and really looking at the data that you have, um, coming through your pipeline, because a lot of the, a lot more of these tools these days are, you're able to cut, like chop and cut and do all of these things to figure out who, who is your ideal client all of these different things.
0: Yeah. One of the, uh, one of the things in using these, um, these different channels to make sure you're getting in front of the right folks. Um. Is taking taking the strategy of, of cross channel marketing attribution. Um, so, for example, um, Anna Ritala here is uh, the CEO of Zvuk, which is a really cool company that helps you get your message in front of the right viewers and connecting you to the right podcasts and, and streamlining that entire process. Um, and in fact, Anna, if you wanted to hop on the stage and give a shout out for we would be happy to, to happy to have you. Um, but if we think about it there's from data kind of like you had mentioned there's there's cognitive data like for example you're filling out a test or there's behavioral data how somebody navigates a, a website for example and then there's biometric data like if your your pupils dilate or you you sweat more or your you know your ekg's and your heartbeat like not just using one of these channels but using all of these channels in conjunction to really get a deep understanding of where the needle is where the needle moves
1: most on on your your prospect making a decision yeah there's again there's a lot of really cool companies out here that are helping sales companies and being able to once you figure out who is your ideal customer being able to find them and get engaged with them
0: right and so so metrics like uh, customer acquisition cost Um, long-term
1: value, these are the kinds of things you recommend that founders focus on? I I think that for the particular company that you are, you need to find what are your KPIs that are the most important and focus on that. And I think that there's a lot of founders that get overwhelmed with too many KPIs rather than focusing, usually the max is about five that I've heard, Mm. but three is usually the magic number of here are the three KPIs that drive our company. Um, and then you can have a couple others that you kind of gauge, but when you have too many KPIs, you, you get, and when you're early, like it can, it can drive you, drive you in the wrong direction because you're you have too much data going through Uh, your pipeline rather than focusing on the correct data.
0: I see. I see. It's, it's also kind of neat to, to stay. I mean, it sounds, it sounds kind of glib, right. But being really close to. To, uh, to, to the customer experience. Um, uh, a friend of mine that I've been advising for a while, uh, she's got a really cool product. Um, unfortunately, she she just spent a, a lot of money, like almost $100,000 on a report, um, this third-party report, helping her understand who is the right target market and how to approach them. And and like, my thought was that if you had taken that, that lump of capital uh, that the, the big sum and instead did put that in some, maybe like uh, some paid and organic uh, uh, campaigns uh, th- then you'd have actual real customers and you could,
1: you could learn directly from them. So one of my favorite things that I usually talk with founders about is have you actually talked to your customer? Who, who do you think your ideal customers are? go talk to them right. because a lot of the times they'll tell you if your product fits. Right. Most people want to talk about themselves and their company and all of these things. Mm-hmm. Let them talk, hear about their problems and actually solve real problems for them. And if they're interested in it, they'll let you know very quickly. Um, and like one of my founders one of one of the, my favorite founders, um, he has a very unique product, and he spent two years talking to two sides of the market and getting the data, building it up. And making sure that the product that he built fit their needs, and both sides loved it, and now they're wanting it to go to market with it. But we're now dealing with regulatory issues getting it to market. How, how do you how do you balance that with?
0: I mean, obviously, you want to have a, a deep understanding of the market opportunity and making sure that you're solving a problem. But like, if you look at Eric Rice from the Lean Startup, like his whole thing is like. Just just get to just get to market and then test as you're live
1: kind of a thing. Yeah. But how do you, how do you balance those two concepts? I think the it's one of those things where a lot of founders before they even build the product they need to go talk to their customer their potential customers. So that way they build something and they're while they're building it they're continuously talking to their customers and <clears throat> showing them hey do you like this and right. so that way you're getting that lean model of constantly iterations before you even get to launch because a lot of these companies they build all of this stuff in a black box and then go talk to the customer
0: well it can be daunting right like i <clears throat> i remember um this is probably like like five or six years ago um when i was i was building a, a company called evlo like we had a cool product we had uh we had a bunch of great content we were connecting local buyers to local sellers like you know, combining online and offline home furnishings and art. But it was just, there was like this, this, this feeling that, that I had, it was like, Oh, what's well, not perfect. And I, you know, I was a little bit, I don't want to say embarrassed, but I felt like I was, you keep kicking the can down the field as opposed to just like jumping in off the dock with, you know, jump at the deep end. If you you have it. to
1: that. Like I highly recommend jumping into the deep end because that's the only way you're going to get good feedback. Right. And like, you want to talk to people as much as you can, because guess what people that help you through this process and give you, help you with those iterations, guess what? They're most likely to be your first customers because they helped build it with you. They actually feel some kind of like, like pride in the product. Right. Like, like they're, they, they they're,
0: help develop. they're part of that momentum. Exactly. You, you know, I, it's funny you say that, Matt, I've heard that that's a great strategy for getting your first couple of angel investors too. Oh yeah. You know, as as long as they um, have some kind of, tech, I don't want to say technical expertise, because this doesn't have to necessarily relate back to
1: product. But and,
0: yeah, what like what are you what do you talking so about? There's so many
1: like, uh, one of the best things you can do is get really good advisors in and that have an expertise in your area, and. Because if you get them involved and feel like they're part of the process, they're going to make more introductions. They're really going to include you in this whole process. So, so that kind of begs the question, who were some of your advisors? Like who, who are the mentors that got you where you're at? Um, I was very lucky with my mother. My mother has been in the legal industry for my whole life. And so she taught me how to do almost everything like a, She taught me how to do contracts, which is a huge part of being an attorney. Right. Um, And so I've had some really great mentors along the way that have given me these nuggets and I've just been collecting them, but it's, it's one of those things where you just keep talking to people. And then it's also like your peers, like you, like it's great having someone of that is on the same level, but at the same time has a completely different skill set that you can leverage and be like, Hey, I need, I need some help with this problem right and then you can be the vice versa on another topic for that person right i I paid him to to say
2: that (laughs) (laughs) that was was good with the sound effect are you are you guys saying that That just what what you were saying about the the early adopters and angel investors that you should take just kind of you know the product that you're somewhat embarrassed of but is, is definitely an mvp and float that out to potential angels or what are you guys saying on that
1: I think you should be going out and talking to anyone that's going to listen to you because gotcha. the reality is, um, very few people are actually going to steal your idea. Granted, you shouldn't be talking to your competitors about it. Um, because that's just common sense, but pretty much anyone else that listens listen to you, um, you should really go out there and talk to them because they're going to, and ask for advice. Don't ask for money. <laughs> yeah because (laughs) that that is the biggest thing. Like uh, I was pitching one of my companies to a bunch of friends and like colleagues and people that are investors. And I was just like, hey, just look at their pitch deck, give us advice. And a lot of them were like, hey, like if once you fix this up, you should circle back around. And that's the thing is people like good ideas. People like people that are looking for advice that are solid businesses. And, and
2: Matt, and, and just uh, um I I think that's that's awesome. I, I totally agree with that. How would you say you would go about that first step of coming to somebody who, with kind of the the, the subter- subterranean goal of getting them to write you a check, but kind of coming at them? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. Um, but trying to come at them for product feedback. How do you, you know, what are your thoughts on on making that leap of like, well, hey, we're looking for money.
1: <laughs> Here's a term so, sheet. So do do I, I usually I my theory is people that want to invest or people that are interested they'll tell you. I never I, I have a very interesting sales style where I don't sell to people like as as a business owner. I don't go and sell to businesses. If a business is interested in my services, after I've talked with them, they'll let me know. I don't have to go after them, pursue them. They, they're gonna want what you have. And they'll give you those signs and yeah, there's follow up and making sure that you're moving the ball forward. But if you listen, like they'll let you know. And they'll be like like, with this company, I wasn't asking, I was just wanting advice because they needed to fix their pitch deck. And then after we got done pitching they're like, hey, once you fix this up, let's do another round. Let's 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 continue this conversation. So, and that so was you were, you were in the right. Exactly. It's God, the, God. they liked it it. And so generally what I advise startups is start with people that you know and trust that are the like the closer people of your friend group that can that are in the industry that can give you solid feedback and then work your way out to your outer circles because guess what certain people start making other introductions and it it, it starts spiraling very quickly if you're if you have something of value in the in the VC world
2: got that so what you're saying is go out there looking for advice and the money will follow
1: yeah don't look for money if you look for money you won't find it if you look for advice You'll find it. There's a Pitbull song. Ask for money and, and get advice. Ask for advice and get money. I love that you do. Just- <laughs> there you go. That's really good.
2: Okay. That was, the, yeah, I love that response. But kind of back to the more legal sphere of things there, Matt. So, you know, you work with a lot of early stage startups as a fractional uh, general counsel. What would you say are the primary legal mistakes that people are doing uh, for, early stage startups that are maybe not looking to raise capital right now, or maybe are looking to raise capital right now. What are the biggest mistakes that you see they make that we can show everybody in the audience that you kind of want to be aware of?
1: Um, I would definitely say that making sure you get your founder's agreements done properly um, because those are, those are critical documents for you. Um, And understanding who owns what equity, getting it documented, getting your cap table, um, and you can never go wrong with getting starting your data room too early, to be honest.
0: Um, what, 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 is a, what is a data room for for those that don't know?
1: So, a data room is a pretty much investors like to go in and look at all of the stuff that you've ever done because you keep you during the pitch, you're telling them about hey, we have this, we have this, we're doing this. But the data room is where the rubber meets the road, it's saying seeing the signed agreements, seeing. Your cap table, seeing all of these different things to make sure that what you're saying is actually true, um, and so that's what a data room is. And so it's so so what what kinds of how does a data room how should you organize it? Um, there's a lot of different ways to do it, but we have a built-in method that we personally use. Cool, um, and we have there's lots of checklists. Like um, a lot of the big law firms, like Cooley and all these other ones, actually have document like here's a list there's lots of articles on there but you can like if you googled it it would take you two minutes to find it but here's a, a quick like company summaries like your sec stuff um any investments that have been made your staff structure h like that includes hr your intellectual property um there's so many different little pieces that go together oh. um, and there's lots of ways to organize it. And it, you have to make sure that it makes sense for your company because a company that doesn't, that's low, that doesn't have a lot of IP, maybe shouldn't have an IP folder <laughs> okay. and you can, you can put it somewhere else. Sure. Sure. So Sorry.
2: Matt, when you, when you start working with like a really early stage company, say they've just started their LLC or just fired up their Delaware C and they've got some IP what do you do with that from a legal point of view how do you how do you make that i
1: am uh, not really sure
2: how to frame it what, yeah, what are you do asking, you do with that are you asking about
1: patent law so Next. there's 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 a there's a lot of different types of ip out there um there's patents there's trade secrets there's trademarks and there's copyright those are the big big four categories um most software companies tech companies are either going to have patents or trade secrets Um, and the general consensus uh, for software companies is you generally don't want to have patents most likely because they will that you have to disclose all of your software Mm -hmm. and that leads to a lot of issues because someone can very easily take your code and modify it enough to where it's no longer your code it's not your covered under your patent Whereas companies that I've worked with, what we'll do is if we do want to do a patent, we'll do a process patent. Mm. Or there's design <clears throat> patents. There's lots of unless, like unless it's a like a science company or like Bio-type a or biotech company where it's like a process or you invented something really cool. Right. Like then you're getting into different worlds. But generally, software companies, you're doing trade secrets right. and you're keeping it internal. Got that.
2: Uh, it, I, that's a, that's a great explanation. I was asking more in terms of assignment. Say you've got somebody who, uh, just creating a scenario. Say you've got an LLC, you've got two members, one person has written all the code, um, but that software is in his personal GitHub. He doesn't use a company email to get in there and, um, uh, a company email to, uh, on behalf of the GitHub and the company is about to get lick or purchased. And officially, legally, that software doesn't belong to the company, which would drastically change the value of the company. Um, what would the process to assign that software from a from a personal GitHub account to the company look like?
1: Um, it depends on where you are in that life cycle. Is it early on or is it like, you're? are you getting just your first investors or just oh, selling um, the company wholesale? Uh,
2: Damn, I wasn't ready for that. Uh, let's say just like very early on, you want to make that assignment. So yeah. the software is officially tied to the company.
1: So you generally like there's two ways that I would do it. One is a part of him purchasing his shares, his investment into the company. Like when he's purchasing his initial shares, that would be part of that. You'd make an assignment for it. Um, the other thing that you would generally do is you'd sign what's called a confidentiality and assignment of work product agreement, which is a very standard agreement that you should have, by the way, every person that's ever touching your company sign, whether they're an advisor, whatever, Um, because you want to own, you need to own everything that comes into your door, into your company. What, what, what are some loopholes on that? Like if it's done off hours? Or- so uh, in states, there's about, I think, eight states, 10 states where there's specific laws geared towards um, after hours for employees. Like mm-hmm. if you're not working for the company during those hours, you're on your own laptop. It's not related to the company. It's not directly related to your personal job. Like there's a bunch of different things, hurdles that you have to get over. But in the um, confidentiality and work assignment clause in that agreement, you have to have a clause that states the generally you have to, or at least in California, you have to have this clause stated, right? And it says exactly what the uh, employee's rights are, or contractors' rights, or whoever it is.
0: I I think that's that has that plays into part of the genesis of Apple computer, if I'm not mistaken. Like Wozniak was working for, I think it was Hewlett-Packard. Um, anybody that knows the story better than me, feel free to jump in. Uh, in fact, David Libby, you, you probably know this much better, but the graphical user interface, or maybe it was the mouse, one of those components they had to at least disclose to HP and say, you know, hey, this is a, this is a side project, that we're working on, and they said, yeah, go for it, Do have fun,
1: yeah. you know, and then
0: come to it find out. It out that it's <laughs> yeah.
1: something much, very, pop, very popular and profitable. Right, right, yeah. right. Um, but that's again why you, um, you have these confidentiality and the work disclosure, work assignment clauses, because right. they're super important to the ownership and the IP that you're creating within a company, because you have to own your IP and your work products and all of these other things. Yeah.
2: Got that. And with that said, Matt, uh, if you don't want to ruffle, let's say you're, you're working at a FANG, which are kind of notorious for causing lawsuits about this. I think there's a Google famous Google one. Um, but let's say you're working at a FANG that have the stringent IPA, the Intellectual Property Assignment Agreements, and you decide to go start another company and, you know, you just don't disclose. Why would, you know, why would you ever disclose? Why would you ever ruffle the feathers of your parent, of your employer before you are, are you ready to go
1: quit? You don't need to disclose it in most cases. You just have to, um, you have to abide by those certain guidelines where it's not on company time, not in company, not in company premises, not using company equipment. Like there's a bunch of different elements that you have to not do. Otherwise, the company can say, hey, we actually own part of that. Because you are using our our laptop. You are on company property. You are on company time. When you're doing it, we are paying you for this work. So that's that's the thing is you have to really make sure that it's not related to the company at all. And then you're fine. Gosh,
3: gotcha. Got you. let's, is let's is say David, you're writing... Oh. Go for, ahead. for it there, David. Uh, I was just going to ask about, you know, it, it's got to be different in different states, right? I mean, you're talking specifically ah, oh, yes. about California. I'm
1: talking specifically about California. Each of the 50 states has their own rules, their own regulations regarding this.
3: Yeah. Um, okay, thanks for that clarification.
1: Yes. Please please do not think that this rule applies to uh, all 50 states. Right. Um, but each state's got their own rules when it comes to this and what is considered it. But you generally want to turn to what is your, what is the document that you signed, say, and does that actually meet the standards that the state has said? Because a lot of times if you breach, like if the company doesn't properly disclose those rights and those things, then you might not be held to them because they it's unenforceable at that point. Um, so there's a lot of different things that go into this.
4: Can you give gotcha. an example of that? I mean, that's a really interesting twist.
1: Um, so right now, I've got a company where we're hiring um, actually all across the world, um, and so and in all and right now, I think they're in six or eight different states right now. And so each each month, I'm I'm having someone in my team go and research the confidentiality and the work assignment pieces of these agreements to make sure that what are their laws, what are their rules and laws and what are their, like how far can we push this with those people? And so some States, if you hire them, like regardless of when you're working, you don't own your IP. Wow! Like, so you have to be careful about your States and you have to be careful about what your contracts say. And so if you are a person that is interested in working outside of your normal company to create something, you want to make sure that you're you have that you're going to own your IP that you create. Because otherwise it could be very easy for your your past employer to come after you come after and say, "Hey, we actually own part of your new company."
4: I have seen that twice in contracts actually um, that come my way upon being hired. And both times I went back with the red line pen, yeah. <laughs> actually three times come to think of it. And I've made them um, rephrase it. Uh, more recently um, it was really interesting. <clears throat> the language was like, we own basically all of your IP and being that I am also a songwriter, technically that means they own my songs. Yeah. Or absolutely. I also paint. So they'd own yeah. my paintings. So what I did is I just went back and said, okay, we need to add this language that I own anything that's unrelated that's personal to me and unrelated to the company and, or in direct competition with the company.
1: Yeah. That again, there's there's a lot of things that you need to do. When, that's a great example of making sure that you read your your employment contract and understand what it says because so many people would just be like, cool and sign under the dotted line. Right, that's oh, uh,
4: Yeah, but can, maybe also, um, what about um, living with a boyfriend or girlfriend though? That in California, they, if you're living with your significant other, even if it's just a boyfriend, girlfriend situation or partner situation, don't they own half your IP?
1: <laughs> I've never seen that. Um, if you have any, uh information on that, I would love to know about that because that would be extremely interesting to me. But generally, you own your own IP because unless they're helping you with it or anything like that, there's no claim. There, there'd there be no claim. If you're married, though, there's a bit of a difference there. Right, Your partner yeah. owns everything, owns half of everything you own unless you have a prenup or a postnup.
4: What about common law?
1: that's a great question. Um, I don't know enough about common law marriages uh, to be able to answer that one. But that is very, uh, that's a solid question.
4: I'll see if I can dig up the other though. And if I do, I'll somehow get it to you.
1: (laughs) I would appreciate that because that. If there's something out there that I'm not aware of, then I'm very appreciative of whoever whoever informs me of something like that.
4: So I heard it in in um, an artistic management class. Daniel um, Axon was the name of the teacher, uh, and he was a lawyer. He is a lawyer, and he was warning um, songwriters that you have to really kind of watch who you're living with because they can try to take your music.
0: Uh, speaking of which, um Alana, since you since you mentioned the creativity around songwriting, um, Ivan Lynn, who's who's on the call as well, has a, a, a brilliant company that uh, that tackles that challenge for for creators. Uh specifically oh, nice. the NFT for for music space, a really cool company called Wave, W A V V. Um so uh yeah definitely reach out to reach out to Ivan. He's doing some really neat stuff in fact ivan was the the head of uh, the head music director for assassin's creed and, and a couple other uh, blockbuster video game hits uh so shout out yeah for, for ivan
4: here nice to meet you ivan you have to bring him up
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> for sure so uh so we've got about uh, nine minutes left in the show um just if anybody else has any questions for for matt you know what let's take some time to do some q a um Mr. BD, I, I know you're also uh, a, a technology and real estate investor and, and, a, and a past guest for, for Silicon Zombies. Would, would love to uh, have some of your expertise and have you weigh in here.
2: Yeah, no, thanks. I kind of, sorry, joined in late. I uh, was kind of looking forward for Matt, but I think uh, we're meeting uh, in person soon uh, to get, to catch up. So I'm looking forward for that.
0: Sounds great. Sounds great. And we've, we've got Ivan who just joined the room. Ivan, if you want to give a, a, a plug to what you and the team are building in the NFT and Web3 space for songwriters, we'd love to have you do that. Might need to hit the unmute button. There you go, Ivan. Hey, hey Nick. Hey, guys. Welcome to the stage. Hey. How's it going, Ivan?
3: <laughs> yeah, so I was actually driving, and as soon as I uh, flipped my phone, I saw that the invited to uh the room. So thank you so much for... For, for that
1: for sure
0: so maybe I mean, can you give us a little bit of background on, on how you're empowering creators to to take control of, uh, of, of their music
3: right so um, I came from a more of a classical music background at first but right. um, a few years ago I figured that uh, when I was in Germany I wanted to do something new and um, Check this guy uh, having lived in Germany for around like 7-8 years I decided to Uh, come to the states and the first uh, Mm um city that i stopped by was uh, boston and actually when uh, the time uh i got to boston i I got a call from uh, warner music asking me if i wanted to uh, join a music production a band uh, that's particularly performing and focusing on video game music so uh, that changed entire uh, scenario with my classical music background plus uh uh, now rock and roll and uh, movie production and the video game music production. So uh, after that, we started to do music productions and live concert tours for the IPs like Final Fantasy, like Kingdom Hearts, Legend of Zelda, and more recently, um, as, as it's created. A piece on and uh we've been uh, music creator ourselves for quite a while. And this uh, create a creator yeah, economy yeah. and uh, yeah, come the community that in the air music air air industry air you know. um right. there is, is always um there there are always things that we wanted to to to, to work on, to create, to do new things. But uh, in terms of copyright, in terms of commission, in terms of the contract, and pretty much all the communications between uh, creators and uh, uh, what we so called uh, the person who is signing contract with, uh, usually the term and uh, the scenario would, would, won't be that good. And that's why we sort of wanted to take this chance it's a it's a quite rare chance because we've been looking into uh, different scenarios in order to uh, solve these problems oh, and we work with like Disney, Tencent, uh, Sony so and they're so used yeah. to so um, traditional weight of uh, with the signing contracts or working with uh, creators but it's not about um, not about Benefiting music creators a lot, and that's why usually, for instance, when we work with Final Fantasy, the contract we sign would be a work-for-hire agreement, which doesn't, at the time, even include uh, royalties and such. So, for such music production in a huge scale, if we're looking into like working with the music, uh, working with these musicians, orchestras, music producers, they're not treated very well and i was reading a lot of articles uh related to web three two or three years ago and at the time it was like really new and I started to see like how OpenSea really uh take off and uh how visual artists are like finally getting uh, treated uh, as the way that uh that, that should be so um and knowing that in the music field it's only very little part that is playing in Web3. So that's why I decided to um, combine music and uh, technology, working with uh, the former head of uh, uh, Twitter and joining as co-founder and uh, a Web3 enthusiastic and me as more of like a music background and decided to
1: mm-hmm. um,
3: use Web3 as a mechanism to kick off a project uh, wave that uh, Nick was introducing and to uh, initiate this field that will really be able to work in a community and benefiting music creators and uh, to make this place a better one.
0: Awesome, Alana. What's your what's your experience with um with with creating? Because well, I know that you've been you've been uh, writing songs recently. Like, what are your thoughts around around getting visibility and? and maybe even monetizing some of your creative endeavors in the music space?
4: Yeah. I mean, (laughs) that's great. It's a, it's a great (laughs) question. (laughs) I know I have like a hundred, I've written like a hundred songs. I have a lot in the, I probably have a half, at least a half a dozen that are, or almost a dozen that are getting ready to release. Um, But the big question as a creator is where, you know? Um, So I, I, I love, Um, what Ivan was just talking about. I mean, Bandcamp seems like, or did seem like the way to go, but then Epic Games just bought it, which is really interesting. And um, I love the idea of empowering the creators themselves and being able to self-publish. For me, I'm not interested in chasing fame, for example, or even fortune. It's more of a labor of love. It's something I have to do. It's not a hobby though for me either. It's, um, it's a way, it's, it's an expression. It's like being an artist, you know, an artist just wants to create art. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's kind of fascinating. It puts me in a really weird place. Um, wondering like, <laughs> cause the industry is, the industry is create music into something else, into formulas, into a machine, into money-making machine. And, um, sometimes we just want to create really good songs or create explorative songs. Um, so uh, it's neat, though, finally for the first time in 2022 and and forward, there's a, there's space for that, um, but there's still the old way of thinking of record labels as well. So um, I don't know. I'd love to hear um, Ivan's thoughts around you know what you're providing for for people like myself. Because there's a lot of us now, and especially with the explosion of coming out of the pandemic, so many more people have adopted music, and this is an industry or a time period, shall I say, of people really starting to feel like they can take be something out of nothing, and not trying to be somebody else. I mean, to me, that's what it's about, right? I don't want to be the next pop star. I don't care about that. You know, Um, just we just want to be yourself, and and give yourself permission to do that, which is kind of where Bandcamp came along.
3: Right, right. If I may uh, add to that, uh, Elena. So, as um, mentioned, musicians, music creators, they are really good at, at uh, producing or writing uh, music, right? And that's the first priority. We wanted to create uh, great music, but there's a lot behind the uh, logistics, including publishing including royalties, including managing concerts. Including
4: yeah, managing when we that have full-time sport. jobs, it makes it impossible.
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, in this industry, I was actually like, uh, having stepped into the technology field, I was quite stunned and amazed by, the, uh, pretty much you, could, you, you couldn't find um, such tool or service that would be able to to, to provide uh, artists with a much better and lower bar, easy to access uh, tool to all the things that we we have to do. And right now, just as I said, it's like 2022, but we're heavily relying on uh, lobbying, communicating with other musicians, or to to, uh, connect through friends and friends. And it's not necessarily, technology enabled service out there. And our idea actually came to uh, seeing the huge success NFT. Uh, Our idea is that for music industry is such a deep water, right? So it's not actually that easy to duplicate uh, to create a marketplace for music NFT. It it relates to a lot of uh, bad communications, and uh connections and access to uh the music field in this yeah, in this community but like, look at how like, nft has been creating the... a yeah. great uh, I source volume off. adding to yeah. a creating really economy well, and yeah, that's why yeah. if last year was the year one for nft visual arts Mm -hmm. then i would say 2022 is year one Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. music Mm -hmm. nft Mm -hmm. entering the market uh Mm -hmm. using that uh method and taking out the strategy and uh to to uh engage and interact with other artists creators and to build your theme base based on uh ai recommended system and pretty much like all that then there will be a really good start to kick off what we call creator kind of but particularly for music and for 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 music creators
4: i think the trick with that will be to make it more accessible to people because the biggest barrier with nfts is just figuring it out it just seems so overly complicated to a lot of folks um and i have another question for you is are you looking to do an integration with audius or are you looking to be more of a competitor? Uh,
3: well, it really would up to, would be up to uh, who we're working with and where we are right now, because the strategy for us will be a little different. Uh, look at OpenC, like
2: crypto
4: an ponds <laughs> or
3: apps. I mean, they are like super successful and they're not necessarily popular or famous uh, at first, but look at how the community would drive them to be super popular in the world of internet and later in uh, like pretty much like physical world. Um, the good thing that we could work on is that based on the uh, the access that we would have to the Grammy Awards, I was just talking to Nick uh, that I came from uh, uh, Las Vegas uh, just a few weeks ago and decided to um, visit San Francisco and pretty much uh, use that as a uh, to talk to or to people and to get to know everyone here. And look at how we've been uh, achieving so far. Uh, during the past few weeks, we've got uh, artists on board to the product. We've got uh, creators on board to the product. So at the end of the day, it's all about what kind of content we'll be able to distribute and what kind of content we'll be able to uh, uh, put out. I mean. See, there's Apple Music, there's Spotify, and for streaming services, there's Netflix, there's a Disney Plus. So content would play a incredibly important role here in order to uh, move forward, whether it's gonna be a competition or we're gonna work with them. And we're like always open doors and windows warrant to a partner with, uh, with uh, creators and artists. So uh, very soon we're gonna figure out uh, what is the best strategy for all of us in this music industry to move forward? Because after all, what we wanted to do is that we wanted to make this place a uh, better one. Creators will be uh, respected and they will be uh, uh, paid and treated well.
4: Yeah, that's the dream, right? I mean, if you can make it simpler for artists, they can focus on their art and then simplify the distribution process where they're creating, let's say the artwork for the NFT and then the music to go behind it. And then all the administration is easy or simplified. Um, That might be a really great route and a way to make it kind of explode because there's a lot of barriers to that right now. So I think you're onto something.
3: Well, exactly, because what we need is lower bars for the community joining. And just as I said, even OpenSea could be really a lot of like, newcomers, uh, consumers, and new users. And having
0: that said
3: case. that, yeah? the primary okay. goal is after you own because NFTs that or after you do have music NFTs, what are you going to do after that? First of all, it needs to be really easy to use. And second of all, uh, it's all the services, uh, the protocols, and the engagements, uh, interactions, that's coming after uh, you own a NFT, it's a meeting with the artist. It's about uh, promoting concerts, it's about advertising and everything with it. And NFT we would see here would be a great way to enter the market, but it's not necessarily a, a way to 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 primarily conduct the entire, because at the end of the day, editions are great at uh, creating music, and uh, as concept goers, we wanted to check out great music. And if we've got a chance to own those great pieces of artwork, then NFT is providing a chance for us to do future online and uh, offline interactions with uh, all the artists.
0: Right. And, you know, speaking of speaking of the NFT space, Matt, I'm, I'm curious from a, from a legal perspective, like, what are your impressions of where we are now, and how the space will change
1: as far as creators' rights moving forward? I think there's a. I think Ivan's onto a really cool point with NFTs and, and the utility that can be given through them. It's going to be very interesting to make. Sh- I think companies need to be very careful about making sure they don't create securities out of these works of art because that's there's a fine line where NFTs uh can just be like selling a piece of work of art versus um creating a security and this is a big this is a potentially huge issue that could be coming up in the next war, in the next uh, SEC um lockdown on cryptocurrencies NFTs and all of this um and so there's a lot of really cool companies that are dealing with this in the right manner uh, shout out to Cloutchain. Um, they are an awesome company that are helping artists and um, people that are just wanting to promote what they're doing in this world. Um, and I think they have a great platform. Do you know their website off the top of your head? I believe it's cloutchain.io. Okay. Great. Um, and so they've been doing some real good work with some artists that I've been seeing in the NFT space.
0: Awesome. Fantastic. Well, hey, Matt, it's been oh. such a pleasure to have you, on the, uh, have you on the show today. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you, you joining us here and, and sharing uh, some, some legal tips and also uh, on how to raise capital and, and scale your business as well. So uh, so thank you so much for, for joining us here. Pleasure to be here. All right. Good deal. And be sure to join us next week on Silicon Zombies, where we will have this, the founder and CEO of Zook, Ms. Anna Rathala, and super jazzed to, to have here. Where we'll discuss social media and how to scale your brand. But so thank you, everybody, and have a wonderful rest of the week. And we'll see you next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific on Silicon Zombies.